Today's episode is brought to you by A-Life Health. Managing IVF just got easier. Download the A-Life app today for easy-to-use test result tracking, medication and appointment reminders, and a timeline to prepare you for the next steps. Your IVF journey, all in one place. Now available on the Apple App Store. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Bedian from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, bringing you another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored with my two charming, lovely, and delightful co-hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Nashville. No, you're not Nashville. I'm you're not Texas Nashville. <laughs> we would adopt her in Nashville, though. We take her. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> How are y'all doing? Good. Great. Good Hanging out. It's crazy hot here. What's going on? What's going on like in your neck of the woods? Weather hasn't quite turned here yet, which is sort of good and sort of bad. Like it's been really a not bad summer here for the first chunk of it, which is nice. Um, But I did have to have the exterminator out yesterday because we are carrying critters in our attic. Um, And like I, I fully acknowledge I live in the Southwest and scorpions and poisonous things are just what we do. But these sound like four-legged rodent type critters. And I did not sign up for this and I am not okay with this. <laughs> but hopefully when the weather turns, which is supposed to do later this week, um, it'll get too hot in that space and it'll drive them out. And so fingers crossed. They'll die. I can't, no, they'll get out before they die. But why would they leave like the confines of like- Your nice house. Your, your nice cool house, house and go there's elsewhere. No air con- there's no air conditioning. There's no airflow up there. And so when it's 110 outside in that space in between the roof and like the ceiling where there's all the insulation and stuff, mm-hmm. that that's going to get a lot hotter than just. Mm. And so they will walk out of there before they die in there because it's it's cooler outside. Like you can find shade outside and a yeah. breeze. can't do that in the attic. Hey, I heard your neighbors up to the north though have a bit of a plague and it sounds like you've escaped the plague and. Nevada? Yeah, there's there's a cicada cycle, or Katie did, depending on what you call them. And so we, right now, it's grasshoppers. And so there's a lot of grasshoppers around, but it's not, it's not a huge amount. Uh, two, three years ago, there was a huge <laughs> plague where if you go back and you Google pictures of the strip, everything is literally covered. I mean, you would walk down the strip and it would just be crunch, 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 because all these little buggies were dying at your feet because they were everywhere. Um, I did not go down to the strip at that time. I stayed inside. Well, when I started residency in Gainesville, Florida, and I think there's some years that are worse and some years that are better, but almost every year in about August in Florida, I don't know what they are. There's some kind of bug and they call them love bugs because they're together. There's a big one and a small one and they're mating and they're all over your windshield, all over your ground. And like I say, the first year I came down, it was like, like, oh my gosh, what is this? You turn on the windshield wipers and they get smushed all over your windshield. And so it's, yeah, it's kind of gross. Every, every, year, but some years are worse than others. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of critters. I don't really like bugs. I hate June bugs. Do y'all have June bugs? Oh, yeah. Oh. So 
I think June bugs, cicadas, and katydids. I think those are all the same thing. Mm, I don't think June bugs. June bugs are different from cicadas. Yeah, and, really? and actually, June bugs are like brown, beetly looking things, and they fly up and like try to like attack. Yeah, you. those those are what I call cicadas. Katy, like grasshoppers and katydids, to me are like the same thing. They're a little jumping. They don't have wings, whereas cicadas have wings. We have those. They screech all the time. But cicadas and June bugs are different bugs because oh, we have okay. cicadas too. Cicadas okay. are the ones with the pretty kind of greenish, pearly, iridescent. Uh, I wouldn't shells, call them right? pretty. I call those beetles. I think we need an entomologist. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> we should stick to what we know. We prefer the two-legged creatures versus the six-legged creatures. Yeah, maybe we should stick to what we know and just or, talk about fertility today. Or in and screwing and attics. Entomology. <laughs> Ew, yeah, okay, let's do questions. Let's do questions. Let's just block out the bugs. Okay, let's block out the bugs. Here's the first one. Hi, docs. I am 38 years old with secondary unexplained infertility. I did one IVF cycle and got seven PGT normal embryos out of 20 fertilized. I am now prepping for a modified natural FET in which I started letrozole for five days and had an Ovidrol trigger shot on day 10. On day 12, my progesterone came back as 1.6, which I'm guessing means I didn't ovulate or it was a poor ovulation. I am taking vaginal progesterone two times a day now, but I am concerned the FET will be canceled because the P4 is so low. My question, if my normal cycle is 30 days, why would a FET be tentatively scheduled on day 16 of my cycle? Isn't that too early? Could that be the cause of my low progesterone, even though my follicles were large enough to trigger? Thanks. Can I take this one? Because I just wrote a whole lecture on it for... You go for it, Carrie. No, girl. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of issues here. Number one <laughs> is natural versus modified natural versus a programmed FET cycle. The effectiveness of all, all of these in general tend to be pretty similar, assuming that the progesterone is good. Mm -hmm. And so there's... There's a whole bunch of advocates for one or the other. Most people tend to go a little bit more for natural modified than a straight natural cycle um, because of the control issues. And Hey, and Carrie, define what you mean, because I think different people and even different doctors call natural modified. I mean, they it means different things to different people. What are you talking about when you say natural modified? So when I see uh, a modified natural cycle, it's typically something done with letrozole, clomid, or gonadotropins. Letrozole seems to be the most common. Mm -hmm. And then there's two different ways to approach ovulation. There's going to be some people who let ovulation happen completely naturally. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some people who trigger it with ovidril, pregnant, yep. one of the HCGs. And then there are going to be some people who do it. And this is what our practice does is once once we see that the lining's good, we start the progesterone and oil. That's and then a day or two later, we give you an HCG trigger. trigger. So yeah. you, you get a corpus luteum. That's Those are the different ways that you can do those modified natural cycles compared with a natural cycle. I kind of like the way you described yours because then you still have that precise timing of yeah, and that's the that's rise why I in do the it. Progesterone, yeah, and but you're still getting that natural support by the corpus luteum. Neat. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it really appeals to the control freak side, and we are absolutely insane about progesterone exposure because it's what Dr. Shapiro, my partner, um, did a ton of his research on in the early days when he was working on FETs, and so like that you would not believe the slide deck that I have on progesterone <laughs> and the different <laughs> studies that've been done on it because they look at oral, vaginal, and IM. Mm -hmm. And so most of the data seems to point 
to the fact that you get a a better progesterone exposure with IM. And so I would be really worried that at the time that you were supposed to have higher progesterone, it was so low because that's one of the the biggest components of not succeeding. So, and vaginal progesterone has a, a pretty good track record, at least in program cycles, of not being sufficient. When I was looking at the modified natural cycles, I didn't see the same, I didn't see the same data set. Like everybody kind of was like, yeah, we think this is probably a good thing for XYZ reasons, but we haven't totally nailed the process yet. And just just to be clear with that, you're starting the progesterone and then your own body's corpus luteum is also producing progesterone. So you're getting two different sources of progesterone, right? Well, with some of the protocols, right? Yeah. And so, um, so avenue of how you get the progesterone, oral vaginal IM makes a difference. Um, I haven't seen any data that supports oral at all for the purpose of IVF FETs. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'd be, I'd be worried on this one that your progesterone's not high enough and that, um, you might want to switch that up a little bit. So, you know, listen to what your doctor says, cause they're going to have a protocol and they're going to know what works best in their hands. Um, and there is, there is something to be said for that. Um, but that's, that's my nerdliness. Awesome. You do one Wow. More? Thank you for answering that question, Carrie. That was, that was brilliant. Uh- <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Hello. I am 28 years old um, and diagnosed with endometriosis when I was 16. I have had four laparoscopic ablations since then. My last ablation was November of 2017, and I got pregnant with my first off birth control in May of 2018. Had a healthy boy in January 2019. Tried for a second in 2020, again got pregnant in May 2020, having a healthy boy again in February 21. We have been trying for a third since around January of 2022. Um, Got pregnant and had a miscarriage in September, but have not had any luck since. Recently found out my TSA is 4.34. So I started Synthroid this month, but my AMH was only 0.64. What would you suggest going forward? Do not have another surgery. Well, there's two different schools of thought kind of as far as endometriosis. Some people in our field believe that endometriosis is outside the uterus. If you do IVF, you take the egg out, you put the sperm with it, you put it up inside the body. That doesn't make a difference. There's another school of thought in our field, um, which if you listen to Bruce Lessie that we had on a few weeks ago, he believes that endometriosis, even outside the body, can cause issues with implantation in the uterus. It's correlated with an inflammatory marker called BCL6, and that's bad. So if it's present, it lowers, at least in his studies that have been done, which are small studies, suggests that it lowers pregnancy rates in people who are trying to do IVF. And so, you know, back in the day when I started out, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we would laparoscope everybody. And so a lot of times we probably took care of an implantation problem if it existed with endometriosis. And so I'm sort of kind of wavering to the school of thought where I do think probably endometriosis may have some negative impact on implantation. And so, you know, yeah, you could argue that you've had four laparoscopies, although I think the last one was like in 2019, wasn't it? Something she said. Been a while ago. No, so, it was. It was, was it recent? No, the 17. last surgery was 2017. She's had okay. two children since then. Yeah, so I mean, I think if you're having pain, if you're having other issues, that would be a reason potentially to do laparoscopy. I think if your doctors at the school of thought that implantation and endometriosis matter, you know, maybe do a BCL-6 biopsy. 
if it's positive, um, a lot of times we'll treat people now with with just Lupron for two months. So um, it kind of depends on it's it's kind of a controversial area, I think, in our field. So let me kind of expand on what I was saying for not having another surgery. Your AMH is 0.64. If somebody uh, goes and ablates some more endometriosis on your ovary, they're frying more of your eggs and you don't need that to happen. Yeah, um, that is you're, true. You're 28 years old. That's an AMH we would expect for somebody who's 38 or in their 40s. 40, yeah. Okay. So it, I, if there is a concern that you may have BCL6 or endometriosis that comes back, I would be a huge advocate for either Orlissa, the oral medication that can help um, kind of chemically ablate endometriosis or doing Lupron. Do that for a couple of months and then you know, trying some ovulation induction or something like that to hopefully expedite you getting pregnant. If after, you know, three, four cycles of ovulation induction with IUI after a couple of months of suppression, then, you know, seriously consider IVF. Um, but I, again, I'm not, especially with your AMH level at your age, I mean, the most likely reason is you've had multiple endometriomas or endometriosis ablated from your ovaries. Um, and you don't you don't have the eggs to spare. Carrie? Seen and agree with above. <laughs> um, all right. So let's move on to our topic of the day, which is one of the more touchy-feely ones, which is how do you navigate this whole process with your partner? And I think all three of us have had experiences, and Abby, you were mentioning one that you've had earlier this week, where a couple was clearly not in agreement about what was going to happen. <laughs> And that uh, that manifested itself very obviously in your clinic. Um, and so today, let's let's kind of go through the process and you know, in part, talk about a little about what we see with with couples and maybe some suggestions of how do how can couples start to talk to each other so that they can be on the same page, so that those differences can be worked through because everybody's going to have differences. It's more how do you deal with them? So when you guys have somebody coming in for the first diagnostic visit, like you haven't met them before, you're just starting the conversation. What are some of the things that you can pick up on as, as a physician watching all this unfold where it's, it's pretty clear these two people have very different ideas about how we're going to move forward? You know, I think we're all probably now, whether we realize it or not, experts in body language because you can just mm -hmm. see, you know, as fertility doctors, and I think most fertility doctors do this, we bring both the both partners in, whether it's female, female, male, 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 female, whatever. You can always tell which partner or if both of them are really engaged just by their body language, if they're leaning forward, if they're making eye contact, if they're, you know, a lot of times if they're, they're sitting close, on separate ends of my right, couch. If they're sitting closer together or further apart, or if the other partner's on their cell phone, you know, texting while you're you're talking. My, my favorite is I, the way it works in my clinic, when I'm going to see a new patient, they're in the waiting room. I actually go to the waiting room and ask them to come back. And I typically call for um, the person who is intending on carrying the pregnancy. Okay. Um, that person's name. And when the other partner just like sits there and looks and <laughs> I'm all, and I'm like, you can come back too. I, what I tell them, I'm like, fertility is a team sport. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And, and that's the, that's kind of a, a first, you know, sign of like one person's ready and the other person's kind of like, I'm not really sure what I'm doing here. <laughs> yep. yep. Is there, um, what do you notice when they're answering questions? 
when there's a discordance between the first half and the second half of the team? I think the first half of the team that's really enthusiastic, you know, answers all the questions. And sometimes the other partner will be completely, if they're not into it, completely disengaged, not answering any questions. Or sometimes they'll interrupt and be like, well, that's not true. We really haven't been trying for that long. We're, you know, trying to discount why they're even there, you know, to kind of There's usually a dominant speaker and that I think that's pretty normal. Like the person who's telling the story. Yeah. Um, But how the other person engages and is paying attention or like dozing off or engaged on their phone, texting somebody else. Um, it's, it, there, there's a huge range, but it, essentially it's, it's how they're in some of it may not even be verbal. Some of it is just like, like we said, watching that body language and how they're agreeing and contributing even without saying something. And Susan, how do you get them engaged? If you can tell the partner's not engaged, what do you do to try and bring the partner into the fold and get him, get that person engaged? Well, I, especially I ask the person who does not seem as engaged, you know, do you have anything additional you'd like to add to kind of your journey so far? Do you have any questions, any concerns? Um, Lots of times people don't have questions. They have lots of concerns. Yeah. Yeah. And um, really making sure that, you know, part of my job is to make sure both people understand we are there for both of them. They are both going through a journey. And sometimes people are, you know, they, they, they maybe have started together. They may actually still have the same goal together because it's really hard when one person wants it and one person doesn't. But we're, you know, Ideally, if they're both sitting in my office, I'm hoping they have the same goal of ending up with a baby, but they may be on their own pathways and kind of helping them get to a singular pathway where they are supporting each other is is part of our role in, in helping through that journey. Well, and I think sometimes the disengagement too is if one partner is more used to being in a doctor's office, like traditional male-female couples, a lot of males don't go to the doctor very often. And I think particularly if it's not a same-sex couple or if it's a you know heter- a heterosexual couple, a lot of times the male partner is not used to being in a gynecologist's office. They feel really intimidated. It's, you know, we have a lot of female employees, you know, we're female and we're talking about a lot of female issues that they don't really want to think about or want to talk about. And it's, yeah. it's really kind of, um, you know, we ask a lot of really probing questions like, you know, how many times a week do you have sex and do you have, you know, all these problems? And so I think they're really, I think a lot of times, at least a male partner sometimes feels very intimidated by those kind of questions. And I, th- I think there's societal pressure of that, like, I'm masculine, I'm a man. And I have always assumed I am virile and I can, you know, create a baby with my, you know, millions of sperm and like having to actually be be faced with doing a test that may or may not (laughs) support that preconceived notion. I mean, it's it's one of those things in society that I think, you know, nobody ever grows up thinking, hey, I'm concerned I'm going to be infertile unless you had like childhood cancer or something like that, that you, you had something that may have actually caused that to happen. And I think women are a little more like, we like to take the blame for things, oddly. I don't know yes. why we do it, but we're, <laughs> we're, we're also good like, on, oh, I'm sure it's on guilt sure it's and blame. A- we're, we're great yeah. at that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we go in expecting it to be us. 
That's right. And guys go in expecting it not to not be them. Not to be them. <laughs> when, the reality, it, when the reality is it's often both, okay? Mm-hmm. It's often a little something on her side, a little something on his side, and you put those together, and that's how you end up seeing people like us. And, and that's okay. That's okay. I think one of the biggest struggles I see in couples is when um, the majority of the diagnostics comes back as it's significantly, say, egg factor or tubal factor, or it's significantly male factor, and there's not something on the other person's, that that it's really, depending on where they started out, that is a really hard emotional place to be at times. Mm-hmm. And how do you, how do you guys deal with and see where oftentimes one partner is gung-ho on doing all the testing and the other partner is nope and they won't do it or they're dragging their feet. Sometimes it's very apparent and sometimes it is more subtle of just not scheduling, not scheduling, not scheduling. And and I would say, at least from my perspective, it tends to be more the in a, a male-female couple, the woman is gung-ho in doing all the things, the man is not. Um, and, and the reason I say it is because if the woman's not gung ho, usually the appointment never gets they even come. They haven't <laughs> yeah, come. They haven't come. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> they don't even come. And so, um, like I have, we have an uh, appointment that's geared, especially for the semen analysis in our, our office when we haven't seen the female partner. And there are lots of times when I will call him and I will say, okay, your sperm is totally normal. But from what you've told me, the, there's there's an issue going on. You guys should have been pregnant by now. And so please have her come in and we'll set up a you know, a, a couple appointment to to talk to both of you. And and she'll be listening on the other line. She's like, well, it's not my problem. I had two babies, you know, five years ago with the prior yeah. partner. This isn't me. And yeah. I'm now 42. And yeah. I'm now 42. Well, and, that's and, and your point that you made, Susan, it's a team sport. It really is. And it's not a male or female issue. It's a couple issue. And that's, some couples don't see it that way. Some are very polarized that it's your fault, not my fault. And that's really not, I mean, I think if we're talking to our listeners, one thing that you need to think about is make it a couple's issue. It's not me or you, it's us. And I think that's the way to sort of engage your partner and get them in the door and just help them understand why it's important that they be tested too. It may be fine, but we don't know. We can't check it off off our list until we actually do that, do the testing. From my perspective, there is power in knowledge. Yes. If you don't know what we're, I mean, if you're listening to our podcast, you have a concern about your fertility, okay? Whether you've been trying for one or two months or haven't tried at all, or you've been trying for 10 years, okay? Or you've been not using birth control and not really trying for more than a couple of months, (laughs) but not been using birth control for a couple of years. If you're having sex and not preventing, you're trying, <laughs> all right? But, um, you know, it's it's one of those things that you have to come in together. Y'all are working through this together to create something beautiful together, okay? And just like you go through different parts of your relationship, maybe one person has a better job than the other person or one person is going through a family struggle than the other person. Like that's part of a relationship. And this is part of a relationship. And this is a really stressful part of a relationship. Um, So we've mentioned in prior episodes that a diagnosis of infertility is as stressful as a diagnosis of cancer. So if you're stressed out, no, that is normal. 
Okay. Come to people like us. We will help you navigate that path. If you need sometimes under these huge stressful conditions, you may need some additional help. You may need to talk to a counselor. You may need to talk to a counselor by yourself. Y'all may need to talk to a counselor together. Somebody may need some medicine for anxiety or depression. That is okay. There's actually very good data to say that with the right medications, not all of them are our favorites, but there's quite a few that are, with the right medications, our outcomes for pregnancy, including mom, baby, childhood outcomes, are much better when we have our mental health Mm -hmm. in as good a condition as it possibly can be. So we really are treating the entire person here. Well, and just to add on to what you're saying, Susan, too, you know, they a lot of couples that we see have been married two, maybe three years at the most. And really, this is one of the first big crises that you may face as a married couple. And so unfortunately, we know that divorce rates are higher in our infertility patients. So I would definitely add on to that. You know, you may need some marriage counseling. I mean, this is sort of a first big dilemma you really have to cope with as a couple. And so I think it can set the tenure for the or tenor for the rest of your marriage even too. So definitely I think coupling couples counseling is a great thing to do while you're involved with this very stressful situation. So just to make it clear, if we as the fertility doc suggest to a patient or a couple, hey, maybe you should go talk to a therapist, counselor, psychologist, or psychiatrist. Are we telling them that they are crazy? unfit to be parents. No, absolutely not. Not at all. We're we are trying to give you the armor to fight the battle. You're here to fight with us. And the other thing along the mental health realm is your partner may not say, oh, gee, I'm really depressed. I'm really sad that we're not able to get pregnant. I'm really sad that I see you cry all the time. Your partner may face it by, you know, basically avoidance. I mean, there's different ways that you can avoid or you can deal with stress. Avoidance is one of the ways. Um, depression is one of the ways. Anger is one of the ways. And a lot of times, and I know Carrie and Susan and I see, unfortunately, quite a lot of angry patients. And sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's individuals. And, you know, they say, and I'm not a therapist, but anger is a mask for a lot of other emotions. And a lot of people are really comfortable. Yeah, they're really comfortable being angry, but they're not comfortable crying, being sad. And so if you find that your spouse is really just frustrated and angry and kind of takes it on you, it's really, they're just sad, you know, and and we see that. And that is definitely, you know, a call for seeing a therapist. It's really important to kind of deal with those emotions and let everybody recognize what the emotions really are so that you can deal with them. And realize that going through fertility treatment, whether it's for infertility or things like recurrent pregnancy loss, it is normal to go through the grieving process. Okay. And, you know, there's, there's denial and then there's, there's acceptance and there's, justification and all those different stages. And remember that you and your partner may not be at the same stage at the same time. And that is okay. Okay. The the thing is to be is to be there understanding. I may be still in denial. You may be under justification. <laughs> yeah. But we're gonna we're we're gonna end up at the end point together, um, supporting each other, and 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 that's really important. So to show just how common some of these things are, think about your last two weeks in clinic. So all three of us think about your last two weeks in clinic. <laughs> in the last two weeks in clinic, have you had a woman cry in your office? 
Yes. Absolutely. Unfortunately, yes. almost every day. I have Kleenexes in my office in every exam room. And yes. I have good Kleenexes because when my father was passing away and we were in the ICU and I'm, you know, just water is pouring out of my eyes and they gave me those cheap ass oh, <laughs> yeah. box of crappy pieces of paper that are wadded up and they call it tissue. Spread. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. not. No. <laughs> um, have you seen uh, a partner cry in your office in the last couple weeks? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Have you seen a couple clearly not be talking to each other? Absolutely. Like they're yes. in the same place, but there is no communication. Yes. Yep. yes. Have you seen a couple yelling at each other, raised voices, whether it's just a little raised or full blown, a full blown fight? Yes, absolutely. Yes. This week, <laughs> and and I we see it with our staff too. Not that our staff are yelling, but we see patients who are coming across verbally not as pleasantly as they could. Yeah, I had a staff, staff member cry this week too <laughs> about because of a situation. Yeah. Yeah, like I so had affects, a patient, it, I write an apology letter to one of my staff members because he was uh, taking his feelings out on her. Mm. And so, all and a lot of times, things, I think when we identify those emotions, I think in patients, and all of a sudden they realize, you know, when they're yelling at you, you're like, you know, for a lot of people, they're you're really just really sad. And once they start to really realize that, then that's a lot of times when you know you can connect with your patient. And, and the same thing with your partner. A lot of times, if you can help them recognize what the emotions are that they're really feeling. A lot of times, I think that's when you make a breakthrough as far as, you know, your ability to work together as a team. Are there any particular techniques that you think are helpful in couples to get them on the same page to at least or at least get them closer, if not exactly the same? I think when, especially when we're posing, if you are a patient in my office and I'm going over your results visit. So I am throwing a ton of information at you. I'm talking about eggs and sperm and tubes and saline ultrasounds and putting them all together and then talking about treatment options. If you can tell that based on prior conversations with your partner that y'all need some time to digest and then come back in a week or two to kind of have that more solid conversation, I am absolutely willing to make that happen, okay? And sometimes I can just read that into you, okay? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I can see it that y'all are just like, y'all are trying to telepathically talk to each other. (laughs) (laughs) And I know it doesn't work that well, okay? And so, you know, sometimes I can read that and be like, you know what? This is a lot right now. Yeah, let's just stop here. here. (laughs) Y'all go home, have a bottle of wine, have a few conversations, write down your questions, and then be able to come back as a unified voice to come back and ask more and figure out more together. It is okay to ask for more time, okay? Mm -hmm. But also know from us that we know that everybody who comes in to see us you want to be pregnant yesterday. So yes. we're, we're trying to get you to your, your destination as quickly as possible. So if you need more time to talk, process, and, and, you know, have those private conversations, truly private without us being there, it is okay. You just have to let us know. Yeah, and let us know on the front end because Susan's right. There's so much information that we have to cover in that visit to really, for us to really feel like we've given you appropriate information. We have to talk about your history. Then we have to talk about 
you know, what kind of tests have you had done? What kind of tests do you need to have done? Kind of like Susan was saying. And then we talk about treatment. And for some people, they want to devour that and they want to get started like two days later, you know, if that's when their period's starting. For other people, they look at you like, wow, that is more information than I have any clue you're going to talk about. And they're just overwhelmed. And so, you know, we try and read that. But, you know, obviously we're meeting you for the first time and it's hard to really read every person clearly. So I just think any information that you can give your doctor on the front end to kind of give really at the beginning to kind of go, you know, we're just here to learn about what kind of tests we want to do. We don't really want to do treatment right now. Or if you can give us some sense for kind of where you're at in the process, that's really helpful and be really helpful for the doctor that you see, you know, to help you start on your journey. I would definitely agree with all of that. And and know for everybody that there's there's a huge range of what is normal here. And so we have a lot of people come in who feel embarrassed or ashamed that mm-hmm. number one, that they're in our office to begin with, but also that they don't have a clear plan or that when we're talking to them over the phone to say, oh, hey, we saw that you have all of this done, but you still need to do X or your partner still needs to do X. There's a lot of times that we can hear the shame and the embarrassment in their voice because their partner's not doing what the doctor is asking them to do. And we know and we get it. And a lot of times for thoroughness, we're not necessarily going to proceed with treatment without all the information because it's our job to know what's best for you. And frankly, to not do something that will potentially be useless or expose you to risks that are never going to result in the the goal that you want. For example, you know, less likely to give somebody medication or do XYZ treatment if you don't know that their tubes are open, if you don't know that they're sperm. And so a lot of times we will wait, but it's very normal for all these things to happen. Sometimes you just need the time and that's okay. And one of the one of the techniques that I think is particularly helpful when you're talking to your partner about XYZ thing that is uncomfortable, hold hands while you're doing it. Because oh, that's it's a good a lot harder to cross your arms and physically make yourself standoffish. <laughs> and so you don't have to, you're not obligated to enjoy it, but um, but hold hands because it makes it a lot easier to not close yourself off. The other thing is try different forms of eye contact. So sometimes being directly across from each other where you are looking straight in the other one's eyes. For some couples, that's really helpful. For other couples, that is too much. They, they can't think while they're doing that. And so it's better for them to be side by side. And so they're both looking in the same direction rather than each other. And then the last thing that can be really helpful is to have the conversations while you're doing something else. While you are driving somewhere, go take a walk in your neighborhood or in a nice park, go take a hike, go, uh, and I mean, go take a hike in the nicest possible <laughs> <laughs> um, Don't tell your partner to take a hike. If you're going to do it, take the it with idea them. The is you take <laughs> the hike together. With them, yes. yeah. Yes. Do not, not in your... separate directions. <laughs> yeah. Like try, try some of those other things because a lot of us fall into the pattern of we're really busy. And so it comes down to, okay, you know, we have 15 minutes between finishing dinner, cleaning the dishes, and when we need to go, you know, go to the grocery store for the night or go to bed or whatever. And taking time for this is helpful. And some people need the big chunk of time where they set aside an hour where we're going to go do whatever or sit here without distraction and talk about it. Other people do better in small chunks because they need to take the information process and come back to it without feeling like their partner is feeling abandoned. So that brings up a very good thing because I know um, Dave Ramsey, the financial advisor guru. Natural um, guy. 
He, he yes. And he often talks about that, like one person can sit there and talk about finances forever. And the other person literally can't do it for more than 15 minutes. That is exactly the way that my husband (laughs) and I are. Like he could sit there and he'd love to have a, like an hour and a half conversation with me. And once in a while I can go beyond that 15 minutes, but generally he has to understand that that is for, for something that's stressful to me, that's as much as I can give. I can give lots of 15 minutes. I just can't do them necessarily back to back. So now wait a minute, Susan, are you getting an MBA? Aren't you masters of business administration? I and you am. can't take it more than 15 minutes? Okay. No, I don't so no, bad. It, it has to do with like <laughs> stress level and how personally engaging it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And because like, it, it's just, I can take it for about 15 minutes and then yeah. we can come back in another 15 minutes and we might be able to talk again. That's but me. I... Like my, my bandwidth for that type of discussion, which a discussion about your fertility, I think is a very similar discussion (laughs) is you're, you're going to have different bandwidths. Yeah, that's true. And so it's, it's okay if y'all need to break it up, but if you're the longer bandwidth person, like just be understanding of your shorter bandwidth person. Well, one of the things we discussed too, we sort of alluded to it, but you know, sometimes, you know, there's certain people that are, like we said, more involved and know more things and you know, maybe your partner doesn't know as much about just the female anatomy and how egg and sperm get together. And maybe they're embarrassed by that too. You know, I think it wouldn't be bad to have a discussion starting out with, you know, now that you've listened to us kind of, here's what they're probably going to talk about at the visit, just to sort of get their mind thinking about it. And so that they can have a chance to sort of maybe do a little research on their own or think about it or check things out before they ever walk through the door. And and also understand that when we're talking about male-female relationships and just because I was talking about finances earlier, what I often see is for my guys who are very stressed out about what's going on, Mm -hmm. they they seem to be the most obsessive about the financial aspect of it. Yes. Because it's the one thing they feel like they can control because they... They can't control how you're feeling. They can't control mm-hmm. what we're telling you. They can't control what the test results are, but they're very in control of the finances, of the medical treatments and those types of things. So if you're seeing that your partner is maybe a little overboard compared to where they usually are on that, you may read into, hey, this is, they're kind of stressed out about this. Their version of stress. It's their version of how they're, instead of crying, like you might, (laughs) or, you know, bottling it up and, you know, you know, kind of that type of thing. They may be kind of engaging their efforts in that direction. So that might be a sign to you, hey, maybe let's have some conversations let me be a little bit more involved in that part, okay? And open the door for him to be a little bit more involved in the part that I'm dealing with too. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I see that not, un, I mean, reasonably often in even same-sex couples, you know, the same-sex yeah. partner who wants to get pregnant tends, tends to be a lot more engaged and, you know, talking about all these different things. <clears throat> and the partner who's, you know, maybe going to be supportive in other ways, but not going to carry the pregnancy tends to be, not always, but sometimes less engaged and sort of the one you have to sort of pull in as well. And so I think it's not unique to heterosexual couples. Same-sex couples are the sort of the same way, I think, too. Yeah. On the flip side of what Susan was saying, where sometimes you need to do multiple, like sometimes you need to set a big chunk of time apart. Sometimes you need to do multiple small sections of time. Sometimes you need to set aside time that says, okay, we are not going to talk about this 
Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's, yes. it's very all-consuming and it just can occupy every corner of your existence. And sometimes you and your partner approach that differently. Like I perseverate about things. I mean, in my, my no. very good, <laughs> very good about reading me and saying, okay, we're going to go through Da, 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 and we'll do whatever long sit down about the topic. And then when I come back to it, he'll, because a lot of, we communicate by text a ton. And and so he'll like screenshot or refer, <laughs> refer to above saying, okay, do you need to see it again? And it's not, it's not in a mean way. It's a, like he can literally snapshot the conversation and say, okay, this is, you know, here's the reminder. And it works really well. And granted, we've been together the better part of 20 years now. Um, I am not that old, um, but <laughs> none of but, us are. That's right. None of us knows, are. Yeah. Like we know each other and, and we know how to communicate things. And when you're in the middle of a hot topic, you sometimes forget just how much you know about your partner and think about it like, okay, if I was telling them how to deal with their other friend or their work colleague or whatever in this situation, what would I tell them? And how would I want to approach it if I was the other person? And actually distance yourself a little bit from it. So, you know, okay, how can I, how can I say this so that the other person can hear me? Because it's not about what you understand. It's about what they understand and communicating in their language, not your language. Exactly. I think that's a great, mm -hmm. yeah, that's great advice. And one of the quick thing too, it makes me think that you know, a lot of times when the one partner is really emotionally wrapped up in it, it's hard for that person to talk about it without getting really upset and crying. And a lot of times for the other partner, that's the reason why they don't want to talk about it. They That's the reason why they kind of put up a wall and want to walk away because every time you talk about it, if you start to cry, it makes them feel bad, makes them feel uncomfortable. So kind of like what Carrie's saying, if you can kind of distance yourself a, a little bit emotionally, think about, think as if it's somebody else talking about this and not you and try and take the emotion out of it. And that way you can have just more of a really heart to heart talk about really the details and, and taking the emotion out of it. I think it would make it easier for both of you, you know, if you can do that. Cool. Any other thoughts, concerns, things that have flittered across your brain about little tidbits that you think might be helpful for couples or just things that you've picked up on. Use um, this to make yourself stronger. That's right. Um, it's it's the two of you against this, not each of you against it and each other. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Cool beans. Well, this was a lovely episode to talk about. It was fun to talk about some of the less technical stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Friendly reminder, we have a conference coming up October 28th, 2023 in New Braunfels, Texas, between Austin and San Antonio. And so registration is open. Go to our website. Uh, let us know if you're having any issues. Shoot us a, a note on social media or, or through our website. And we want to make sure that this works for you. So if something's not working, please tell us because we want to make it like the goal is to make this helpful. Um, That's right. We'd love to hear from you as always on, on social media, Instagram, Facebook. So send us a message about the conference or not and say hello. You can also visit us on fertility.sensor to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on our Ask the Doc segment. Um, and like Carrie was saying, we'd love to hear, hear episode ideas and also subscribe to us so we can keep going and, and understand what you want from us. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was brought to you by A-Life Health. 
Whether you're currently going through IVF or looking to create a digital record, the A-Life app can help you stay organized, informed, and empowered throughout the entire IVF journey. Download the A-Life app today, now available on the Apple App Store.